Dr. Kelly Victory and myself will be speaking with uh, Joshua Getzko. Uh, he is uh, raising issues about uh, what he's calling the bait and switch uh, around the original studies of the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, they were using manufacturing process supporting an increased supply uh, administering to only 250 participants between 16 and 55 years of age. Uh, but again, the safety and imagedicity uh, was not, I, yeah, I can't read you the whole thing because I'm running out of time. The point is there's been a bait and switch when it comes to how the Pfizer study was done beyond what Dr. Freeman was telling us. We'll get into that after this. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. These products have transformed my life and Susan's and saved her marriage. Discover the key to oral hygiene, regardless of your current daily dental routine, whether you diligently brush and floss multiple times a day or you struggle. You got bleeding gums, bad breath, plaque buildup. This revelation is for both of you. Surprisingly, over 350,000 Americans experience health issues that may be connected to their toothbrush or even caused by it ranging from heart or blood sugar problems, forgetfulness, digestive difficulties, immune issues, all related to oral hygiene. Scientific studies have shown that a simple switch of your toothbrush can lead to a healthier teeth and potentially save your marriage. Yes, save your marriage. Our study, we did a personal study. My wife, Susan, hates the sound of the sonic toothbrushes, but introducing the real white sonic toothbrush of course, also their hydroxyapatite dirty mouth mineral toothpaste by Primal Life Organics. These products have transformed my life and Susan's and saved her marriage. It's much quieter. It's a very powerful toothbrush, but it is quiet and it saved our marriage. So the real white sonic toothbrush from Primal Life Organics stands out among all other electric toothbrushes I've tried. It effectively eliminates plaque, harmful bacteria, promotes gum health. Get yours and enjoy 60% off at naturaltoothbrush.com slash DREW. We, uh, that is in fact what happened. Thanks to that toothbrush. I was thinking about it this morning, right, Susan? Yeah, we're still together. <laughs> That's hysterical. Uh, so do check out this stuff. I also found the whitening, uh, equipment in one of my children's bathrooms. So they are enjoying it as well. So I was looking for that. So today we're going to get into it first with Joshua, Josh Getzko. He is a senior lecturer at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, PhD from Princeton, uh, and a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard with the Robert Wood Johnson Scholars in Health Policy Research Program. Uh, he has been talking about this bait and switch in terms of the manufacturing process. I could barely spit that out when I was trying to tell you guys earlier, but the fact is there seem to have been two processes involved in the manufacturing, something, the kind of thing Dr. Victor and I have been discussing for a little while here. So first of all, please welcome Josh Getzko. So Hi. thank you for joining us. Thank you. 
so let's get into a little bit on these two processes because we, we've been seeing, we've been hearing evidence all along that there was something going on with the manufacturing. You've zeroed in on a very specific issue as it pertains to the original research. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting because this has been hiding in plain sight really since October of 2020. Basically what happened is that the Pfizer trial, the 44,000 participant trial, um, they used one manufacturing process to make the vaccines that were used in that trial, okay? And that manufacturing process was a relatively clean manufacturing process. You might call it a bespoke manufacturing process, but it's very expensive and small batch, you can sort of only make small batches. So they needed to come up with another manufacturing process to roll out the vaccines you know, to billions of people around the world. So the first batches for the trial, we call them clinical batches or what Pfizer called them process one, okay? Process two batches use E. coli bacteria essentially as a medium for growing um, the mRNA, okay? Just to make it very simple, okay? And that was the product that was sold and injected into billions of arms around the world. Now, Pfizer said uh, at some point they updated their research protocol and they said, well, we're gonna, we're gonna test this 250 people per batch of this process too. We're gonna, we're gonna test it, we're gonna compare the safety, we're gonna compare the immunogenicity, like what kind of um, antibody response it elicits. Uh, so, but until recently, we didn't really know how much Pfizer actually compared it or tested. But before I get to that, let me just back up for a second, because one of the key issues here, maybe the key issue, is that when we're talking about biological medical products, biologics, okay, the process is the product. You can't change the process, definitely not in as a dramatic a fashion as they change their production process and then not run a clinical trial on that new product. It's a totally different product. And you can't just assume that everything's gonna be the same, especially when you're talking about growing this in, um, uh, you know, growing the product in E. coli bacteria, which now you just had on your show a few weeks ago, Jessica Rose who was talking about the DNA contamination that's been found in the in Pfizer doses and also Moderna doses, it uses a similar type of manufacturing process. That's a direct result of this new, what they call process two manufacturing uh, method. In addition to that, it also, it also contaminates the vaccines with endotoxins, right? Which are the membranes of the E. coli bacteria which are highly toxic. And we, I, we can talk about what that might have uh, brought about or what kinds of problems that, that might have caused. The key issue here is that they advertised one product, right, on the basis of this amazing trial that, you know, you, you know was on 44,000 people. That's the bait. And then they switched it with a totally different product that had a very different safety profile. By the way, regulators were concerned when they studied the when they when Pfizer was showing them the comparisons 
the laboratory comparisons between these two, two different products, they found that the um, integrity of the mRNA was much lower in this other newer production method. Um, we went from about 80% integrity to down to about 55%, 60%. And the regulators were like, well, what is this going to do? Uh, how are we, what, what should we do about this? And eventually what we just did was they said, okay, we'll accept this. And there was no study. As far as we know, there was no preclinical study done on any animals with this new production process. We've never seen any, any evidence that they've done even at that level of, of a study. So tons of questions. Uh, did they do the 250 people per batch? Did they, did they even do those sort of weird little studies? So one of, so 250 per batch, right? So we, but it, the, uh, because of the Freedom of Information Act request and the lawsuit that forced the FDA to release all of the Pfizer data, we've been able to sift through that data and show that they never tested the process two doses on more than 252 people. Now about this, the comparative study that they said they were going to do, uh, we had never seen any evidence that that study had been done. It was supposed to be produced by February, 2021, after the emergency youth authorization allowing the vaccines to be rolled out. Just recently, an investigative journalist, Nick Hunt, got a, a Freedom of Information Act request from the British regulatory agency, the MHRA, where they said that two, two years later in 2022, September 2022, Pfizer changed their protocol to say, no, we're actually not going to do this comparison after all. Because by then, you know, so many people had gotten the jabs that uh, there was no need to do this comparison. How was the vaccine produced in process one? I thought this was sort of routine to use E. coli recombinant DNA. Uh, it, it is routine um, and it's problematic. It was, they used a, a PCR process basically to do uh, process okay. one I'm sorry, for the clinical, clinical trial batches. That's um, the process so, one as you described it, right? The bespoke batches. Yeah, the bespoke, yeah. That's and, right. And, and yet... One of the interesting things about this is that I'm, re I'm reflecting on the Danish data that showed that the earlier batches were the ones much more associated with adverse events, at least in that study, that 10% uh, of the batches are responsible for 90% of the problems. And I remember Sasha, I think it was Sasha Latipova has been worried about the batches and the batch size and the sort of the usual, the customary um, manufacturing practices that appears to be obviated in, in the present moment. Do, do you think about those two issues as well, or how do you how do you bring those things together? Absolutely. Well, I think that the, this particular type of manu manufacturing process uh, may pr introduce uh, more variability between the toxicity um, and the uh, effectiveness or immunogenicity of uh, different batches. Um, and we, we published uh, with a, a co-author at, at MIT, Re uh, Professor Retsif Levy, we, we published a rapid response in the British Medical Journal um, talking about this variability. One of the things that we pointed out, we, we mentioned the, the Danish study. One of the other things that we pointed out was um, that 
you know, after the, around uh, mid-December 2020, they started giving the placebo subjects uh, back, uh, real vaccines. And their adverse event rate and serious adverse event rate was much higher than the original um, vac vaccinated subjects or the original treatment subjects. This is straight from a Pfizer clinical report to the FDA. And we don't know why that is. And Pfizer didn't explain it other than to say it was as expected. Now, one of the things that a lot of doctors have uh, grappled with, and I'm sure you have as well, is this idea that, well, wait, how we're seeing these adverse events, but we didn't see any similar types of adverse events like that reported in the trial. So for example, um, the vaccine was um, released in December 8th in the UK, and two nurses that were given the vaccine on that first day suffered severe allergic reactions, probably anaphylaxis. And as a result, the day after they changed the regulations, they said, well, you should sit and wait for 15 to 30 minutes to make sure you're not having an anaphylactic reaction. Now, do you know how many anaphylactic reactions there were in the original trial with, let's say, 22,000 people who got the actual vaccine? There were two. There were two anaphylactic reactions, and those actually weren't in, in people who got the vaccine. Uh, they were in placebo mm -hmm. subjects. One of them actually had it like a day or two after they got the real vaccine, after they've been unblinded. Mm -hmm. That's okay. But basically, there's a, there's, it basically didn't happen in the vaccine trial. And yet the day it's rolled out uh, in real people, in you know nurses in England, that we're seeing anaphylactic reactions. And one of the things that is known to cause an anaphylactic reaction is endotoxin. So there's a there's a there's a thought that maybe this is related, and this is why we're seeing so many adverse events that we didn't see in the trial. Now there is another possibility, which you know is that uh, Pfizer was was hiding it. By the way, the same thing can be said for menstruation problems. There were like you know there was just a study that just was just published the last couple of days in uh, Science Advances showing something like 13 to 14% of uh, premenopausal women uh, had experienced um, some kind of menstrual disruption or bleeding within four weeks of getting vaccinated. Um, that's 13 or 14%. Do you know how, what the percentage was in the trials? It was like 0.07% or something like that. There were like, you know, maybe five reactions among the vaccinated women. Um, where, why is there this huge disconnect between what the trial is reporting and what is ha actually happening in real life? Mm -hmm. Well, here we have an explanation. Look, either the, the either the, the manufacturers or the, the you know are, are lying or hiding or didn't do a very good job of capturing their adverse events, or it's a signal. It's it's evidence. Not that we need any more evidence because we know they switched the manufacturing process to one that is much more likely to cause adverse events. So one of the things that has been suggested in some of the literature I'm reading is that the plasmids may be responsible for that ovarian dysfunction. Uh, and there's a lot of buzz about plasmids right now. That's all getting kind of sorted out. But it is often, just to, just to 
put a proper spin on this, it is often the case that when a drug is rolled out on a large scale, a whole ton of adverse events come to bear that they didn't see or didn't anticipate. That, that's just very common in medical research. Before I bring Dr. Victory in here, one more thing. How did you get involved with this? Um, well, I had started becoming involved in this actually prior to COVID when I was alerted by some colleagues to the extent of um, uh, censorship in a sense or uh, the retractions and repression of scientists who were raising concerns, safety concerns, legitimate safety concerns about the safety of vaccines. And then when the Pfizer, when, the, when these new uh, COVID vaccines were rolled out, I started tracking uh, adverse events on VAERS and, um, and, you know, just it sort of snowballed from there. I've uh, given uh, Got it. comments. You were just asking the, uh, questions. What? Asking questions. All right, let's, um, we're going to take a little break here and then I'm going to bring Dr. Kelly Victory in and give her a chance to have at you a little bit. And uh, just past the bottom of the hour, we'll bring in Senator George Borrello and uh, New York civil rights attorney Bobby Ann Cox and Brownstone Institute. Uh, she's a fellow at the Brownstone Institute. So give us a, little, a second for a little break here, and we'll be back with Josh Getzko uh, and Dr. Kelly Victory right after this. Fall is right around the corner, which means dry, flaky red skin from allergy season is coming with it. But the best way to take care of your skin is with our skincare secret, GenuCell. You don't need to worry about that puffy, tired eye look or those annoying dark spots or even dry, flaky skin because GenuCell skincare has you covered. Susan and I love our GenuCell products so much, we want you to try our personally curated skincare bundles. It's risk-free at GenuCell.com slash Drew. GenuCell works so well, you can see the results in this unplanned live moment on our show when the Redness Repair Cream repaired my skin in just minutes right before your eyes. Their concentrated vitamin C serum helps keep your skin plump and hydrated. Plus, with their immediate effects, you can see astonishing results in under 12 hours. Quick, effective, and easy. Go to GenuCell.com slash Drew right now to try our bundles and save over 60% today. And remember to enroll in GenuCell's world-class concierge program for additional savings and free shipping. Don't wait. It's GenuCell.com slash Drew. G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash D-R-E-W. There are three reasons the central banks are dumping the U.S. dollar. Inflation, deficit spending, and our insurmountable national debt. The fact is, there is one asset that has withstood famine, wars, political and economic upheaval dating back to biblical times, gold. And you can own it in a tax-shelter retirement account with the help of Birch Gold. That's right, Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k, maybe from a previous employer, into an IRA in gold. And the best part, you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Just visit birchgold.com drew for your free info kit. They'll hold your hand through the entire process. Think about this. When currencies fail, gold is a safe haven. How much more time does the dollar have? Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with Better Business Bureau and thousands of happy customers. I do not give financial advice, and previous performance is no guarantee of future performance. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew to get your free info kit on gold. That is B-I-R-C-H-G-O-L-D dot com slash D-R-E-W. I think everyone knows the next medical crisis could be just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of another pandemic or something much more routine like a tick bite. You and your family need to be prepared. That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their physicians on like Dr. McCullough frequently. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals you can trust. 
And their new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy. It's really, it's a safety net. It's an insurance policy yeah, absolutely. that you hope you're not going to need, but if you need it, you sure as heck are going to wish you had it if you need it. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin, z The medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all these life-saving medications. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID-19, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured, knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to help you and your family stay safe from whatever life throws at you next. Go to drdrew.com slash TWC. That is drdrew.com forward slash TWC to get 10% off today. Just click on that link. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate of public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. And Dr. Kelly Victory, I gave you Dr. Getzko. Terrific. Thanks. Welcome, Josh. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your input on this. Um, I've got a bunch of stuff I want to ask you about, so I'm going to get right into the weeds. I want to start at the top, though. You've been to, I've been reporting for the past three and a half years on the disaster of this pandemic response and certainly the devastating impact, in my mind, of these uh, vaccines, including starting with the paucity of safety testing, the paucity of due diligence that was done on them uh, prior to them being launched in the public. You have referenced now multiple times these 44,000 patients they were tested on. Let's step back, give us a little, actually, let's put some perspective on this 44,000. Talk a little bit about the actual testing prior to the quote bait and switch. Let's just go back to what was the real testing briefly uh, on 44,000 people of the original BioNTech Pfizer shot. Well, as you say it like that, and I hear my words echoed back to me, I realize that I'm repeating the same kind of marketing gimmick that they were using at the time because the jabs, the, you know, the, the vaccine was actually only given to about 22,000 people. Uh, the other 22,000 were given the placebo. So it's not 44,000 that it was actually right. tested on. It was 22,000. So you can get that right. Um, now, I'm, and here we're just talking about the Pfizer trial. We could talk about Moderna later if you want. Um, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, in my analysis of the trial data that stood out to me is the short term in which the trial actually was conducted because they started uh, enrolling people in late July 2020. And by mid-December, they had already started unblinding people, uh, the, the placebo group especially, and giving them um, the real vaccines. Uh, and by March, um, something like you know, 89, 90% of all of the placebo group had been given uh, the vaccine. So that it was an extremely short trial, right? Once they started on blinding people, that was basically it. That was it. It was so that was kind of shocking at the time. Um, I don't know what else exactly to say about no, the trial. I do no, know so we do know that there were some 
people who experience very severe adverse events. We know at least two cases where it's clear as day that the at least the, at the trial level, those adverse events were, were covered up or mislabeled uh, and downplayed. And they're probably yeah, so it, it, yeah, and so I in no way did I mean that as an I you know gotcha at all. I just wanted to put some color on this for our viewers that you know I've been reporting that there was no significant safety testing done on these, and I maintain that you know the average vaccine takes six to eight years in testing. So. At, you know, number one, as you said, zero. it's 20. Right, there was zero. zero safety testing because the vaccines that were given to the 22,000 people in the trial are not the same product that was given to the rest of the world. Okay. They but, only but even gave it, but, it to 452 people and they never tested. By the way, I've looked at, I've, you know, I could, I've, I've made a safety, my own little safety comparison. Uh, and my, you know, they, even if you're not concerned about safety, you're concerned about how efficacious is this new product. So they looked at the antibody response of four people, four people, all of them under the age of 23, only three of them had an antibody response. Right. So but my, but my, yeah, my point is, however, that even independent Josh, of the bait and switch, and we're going to get into that. Independent of that, giving 22,000 people a vaccine, following them for a period of months, a few months, then eradicating your control group because you then give all the people in the quote control group the actual vaccine, independent of the bait and switch. That is absolutely horrific. There is no safety data that's being generated there. Add on top of that, that that 22,000 people who received the shot for a matter for the 15 minutes that they followed them, that did not include pregnant women, lactating women, people over the age of 50, anyone with an autoimmune disease, anyone who had already had and recovered from COVID, they were eliminated. This was, so they, they tested, quote unquote, the vaccine. And this is before the bombshell that you're dropping about Baton's, about the fact that then what actually got rolled out to the market was a totally different product. So from the get go, there yes. was a, it was, it was, there was a huge failure in what would be the standard regulatory process. Absolutely. The one, one thing you said, which is not accurate, is that they only gave it to people under 50. They, the people that were given, they had two age groups, 16 to 55 and over 55. So there were a lot of people okay. in the over okay. 55 group. Fair enough. Fair enough. But you're okay. right. You're absolutely right. And, you know, the people, if you look at sort of like their health profile of their, you know, like the, if you just look at the mortality rate of these people in the trial, it was much lower than you'd expect, meaning that these people were generally healthier than, than most people. Right. Um, okay. Than, you know, sort of general population. So two other big things I want to get to before we run out of time. Number one. So, so now fast forward, they do the bait and switch. The actual product that's being given, you know, to the public now is not the one that was tested on those 22,000 people, albeit for, as I said, about 15 minutes. So the new product is the one that uses this recombinant DNA. Now, August of 2021, the FDA approves, gives its stamp of approval to one of Pfizer's products, Comirnaty, the branded shot. Meanwhile, they still have the emergency use authorization shot that the FDA says they're the same product, but they're distinct. Okay. 
So there's this branded comernity and they go on to give everybody in the United States. Comernity is not available in the United States. We, the only thing that's available in the United States is the stuff that was under the emergency use authorization, which, you know, not surprisingly, gives you know blanket liability to Pfizer. Now, was the Comernity product that actually is FDA approved? In your understanding, is that a product that used this process too, the recombinant DNA? Do you know? Yes, but also the EUA used that same method. That's Pfizer's okay. manufacturing method, and that's the preferred manufacturing method and will be for the mRNA vaccines from any company, um, not just Pfizer. And so what we, you know, so we have to, you know, if we start to step back and think about the larger picture here, um, even even now, Pfizer and other other vaccine manufacturers are referring to this big study that was done. They said, well, we did this big study. We don't need to do it again. We know that it's safe. We know that it's effective, whatever. Uh, so there's just no need because, you know, it was done. And this is, so now they've cre they created this, you know, landmark and they're going to keep referring back to it, even though it's completely irrelevant to the product uh, that they're actually trying to sell. Well, so, okay. So, so Pfizer does this shell game where they approve comernity that's an FDA approved product, not available in the United States, but it's approved. Right. And they did it, I believe, clearly to try to motivate people who were concerned about the fact that the shots weren't FDA approved. And they said, well, I'll, yeah. I'll take one when they finally approve it. So, th so they said, OK, it's approved had, now. Go ahead. They had survey data. Uh, there was a study done in summer of 2021 showing that people were more likely to get the vaccine if it was approved. And so they rushed right. it and they, 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 they rushed it so hard. They also, by the way, were planning to introduce the, um, you know, the mandates and you couldn't, they couldn't do that with just an EUA vaccine. You had to have an approved vaccine. And so it came from the you know, top levels of the White House down uh, to put pressure on the FDA, leading to um, the resignation of two senior FDA officials because they're authority was usurped and basically taken away from them in this process and given to, to Peter Marks, um, basically just, you know, circumventing their, the chain of command there. Right. So not, um, but not only was it rushed, but it, it that's not what you get it, it, today. If you walk into Walgreens today in the United States to get a Pfizer vaccine, the shot you will get, if you ask to see the vial, does not say Comernity. It is not the FDA approved product. It is the BioNTech EUA product. That is what you will get injected into your arm. Right. And because it is only the EUA product, if you drop dead walking out of the Walgreens, there's no one you can sue. If it had been Comernity, if it were an FDA approved product, you would have recourse. But right. so yes, they did approve Comernity, except that that's not available in the United States. OK, yeah. so so that was the se that's the second level in my mind of total yeah. bait and switch. OK, I mean, of the of the no, ongoing yeah. shell game, yeah. the, the, the bigger no. issue and the thing I go ahead. No, see, the thing, ahead. I, the thing I the thing I read, the thing I wanted to ask you about, because this is an area that I need, you know, your expertise on is, OK, so now we're using we they've slipped in this recombinant DNA product that hasn't been tested. Let's talk about some of the issues. You said that's, quote, very problematic, your words, the recombinant. Let's talk about that. What are some of the issues, some of the problems 
that you've seen, that you're aware of, that involve the DNA component of these mRNA vaccines? Well, I'm actually of the opinion that the endotoxin contamination is, a, is actually a much bigger issue than the DNA contamination. At, at present, the DNA contamination is fairly uh, theoretical. Um, it is concerning, and I don't mean to dismiss it at all. It's a big problem. Um, the endotoxin, there's a researcher, a chemist in uh, Australia, his name is Jeff Payne, who's dug into research on endotoxin, which turns out there's a ton of research on it because it's it's been linked to many diseases because we can leak endotoxin from our um, uh, digestive system into our blood. Anyway, uh, and he, you can, he's pinpointed and shown how you can link it to so many of the different adverse events that people are observing. And again, many of the adverse events that they didn't uh, observe in the trial. Um, now, uh, Drew, Dr. Drew said that, well, it's a very common thing that you see things that you didn't see in the trial. Well, that's true. But that's especially true with smaller trials. And most trials are much, much smaller than this trial. So if you have an adverse event that's happening at a rate of 15% and you're testing it of 15% of people and you're testing it on 22,000 people, you're going to see it. You're going to see a lot. Right. right. So that just doesn't wash. So I think that the endotoxin is a bigger issue. And it's also um, there are a couple of other reasons why it's a, why I think it's a bigger problem, because the DNA problem, if it were recognized, uh, which it probably won't be, at least publicly, but it might be recognized kind of behind the scenes and they might clean it up because it can be cleaned up. Endotoxin, mm -hmm. you can't, it's much, much harder and maybe impossible to clean up. Um, and uh, and, you know, there are other problems. So they, they say that, the, well, the level is below a certain threshold or whatever, but they're, they're using a very inaccurate uh, way to measure the level of endotoxin. So we don't actually know how much endotoxin is in this because no one's ever right. tried to use a very accurate method. And you don't need a lot. You just need a little bit of endotoxin and it can start a cytokine storm um, that, you know, leads to all kinds of problems, including anaphylaxis. Right. Guys, a lot we will of people have don't. to kind of leave this. We have to kind of leave this here. Okay. We're running out of time. Ask that final question, Kelly, if you wish. Well, I, I just was going to say that you, if people don't understand sometimes that uh, much of the havoc that is wreaked by different infections isn't from the bacterium itself, but actually mm. from uh, the, the endotoxins that are created by it. That happens. Certainly a toxic shock is not, you can, you can eradicate the bacterium entirely that causes toxic shock and, and end up dying as a result of the of the toxins that are left in that cytokine storm and everything that occurs as a result. I do want to get in at some point. I'd like to bring have you come back, Josh, because I really want to talk to you about your experience in looking at the VAERS data. Um, that's something that our friend Jessica Rose has, has certainly been uh, involved in deeply. Um, but I think exposing the um, really the abdication of responsibility on the part of the people who own the VAERS system, the NIH and the CDC, specifically HHS, who are supposed to be using that data as the proverbial canary in the coal mine. So really interested in, uh, least give us your final thought at least on what's your estimation of the and, VAERS and, data? And, and commit that you will come back for that. I'd love to talk about that stuff. I would love to come back to talk about that. I think it's an important story and quite explosive because the CDC 
did do a safety signal analysis. They found hundreds of safety signals and that has been covered up and nobody has ever talked about it and has never been you know, broadcast on any mainstream media channel. Um, so it's a, it's a huge problem. I think people uh, just tend to discount discount VAERS, but you know, the CDC and FDA people publish in the major medical journals using that data. So how bad can it really be? Right. Well, we, we found out from Dr. Fryman who talked to this, the uh, FDA directly that the way they determine whether or not something is of actually a, a connected reaction to the vaccine being administered, <laughs> literally, we, we heard the tape, their reaction was, he asked, how do you determine that, that something is a vaccine reaction? Their answer, we got a guy. We got a guy that goes out and looks at the data. Yeah, so, yeah they so got a guy one Bob. guy, <laughs> one guy goes out and says this is or is not a vaccine reaction. You, something. Imagine if that had been what they did with the Vioxx data around uh, coronary disease. Uh, that, that's not that, coronary disease is common. That, that's not the Vioxx. Our guy said no, and that that is something that's indeterminate, and that right. is at the core of how they're getting around what you're going to tell us about. Right. And they also say, what is the other thing they say? They say, well, we didn't see this in the trial, so it can't possibly be related to the vaccine. Right. Well, no wonder you didn't see it in the trial because you got, gave them a different product. Right. Different vaccine. Right. All right, Josh, Dr. Getzko, thank you so much for spending a little time with us. We'll get you back in here very soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You got it. We were switching gears and we were talking about something, frankly, I find even more egregious, if that's possible. Uh, our guest. <laughs> are uh, Bobby Ann Cox, a New York civil rights attorney and a fellow at the Brownstone Institute. Uh, she was involved recently in historic lawsuits against the New York governor, which is now being appealed by that and the attorney general so they can continue their, their uh, executive overreach. Uh, Senator George Borrello is an unwavering advocate for rural New Yorkers, champion of agricultural, small business, middle class, re-elected the New York State Senate in November 2022. And uh, he has been one of the leading voices against government overreach, particularly excessive uh, executive overreach. And uh, that is something we have seen <laughs> front and center throughout much of this uh, extraordinary time we have been through. Uh, let's see now, shall we, Senator, shall we begin with you? Well, first of all, thank you. It's great to be on with you. Uh, you know, uh, I think what we, we saw in the pandemic is we saw this lust for power and that uh, particularly governors, executives across this nation uh, that saw what a little bit of fear and a lot of propaganda would do. Uh, and it gave them really uh, unbelievable powers. Uh, it started here in New York State with Andrew Cuomo, our previous governor. Uh, he did some horrific things, including sending COVID positive patients back into nursing homes, leading to the death of thousands of senior citizens. Uh, and it was all done with executive order. And with a legislature, a state legislature, that willingly gave him all of that power to become essentially a dictator, uh, a tyrannical dictator. And unfortunately, that has now continued on with Kathy Hochul. And what's worse is that you know, the pandemic is over, yet she wants to hang on uh, to those pandemic powers. But uh, far more reaching than that, uh, the, the lawsuit, which uh, Bobby Ann will explain, uh, is really about the fact that she has usurped uh, the uh, the legislature uh, at this particular juncture by creating a rule, a Department of Health rule, uh, that uh, is in fact a law, which is unconstitutional. It is a 
violation of the separation of powers. Uh, and she lost in the state Supreme Court in, in a decision where the judge absolutely, uh, you know, annihilated what they had done in, in, in his decision, calling it calling it a, a violation of due process, uh, calling it a violation of separation of powers, and, and just a, a violation of individual liberty and civil liberties. But yet, uh, since the governor has all of our money to work with, she is continuing on. She's appealed that decision, which was just heard on September 13th in, in the uh, in the in the uh, court of appeal, excuse me, the uh, appellate division uh, in, in Rochester, New York. So uh, it is unbelievable uh, that people don't know what's going on. They don't understand that the United States has quickly lurched towards a totalitarian socialist state, and New York right. State is without a doubt at the top of the list when it comes to this lurch towards uh, towards uh, a dictatorship. Bobby Ann, let's get into the weeds on the legal issue. And uh, certainly I, I hearken friend Kelly spends time in this, the great state of California that uh, I, I would say was maybe at least a half a step ahead of, ahead of New York. Uh, this extraordinary delight in uh, telling people how to live their lives and the even more extraordinary uh, acceptance on the part of the public and asking for more, our young people in particular. But we'll talk about that. First, let's talk about the legal issues. Bobby Ann. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this case is really, it's unbelievable. I mean, I talk about it and people think I'm making it up, but uh, basically we sued Governor Hochul, her Department of Health, her Commissioner of Health, the Health Planning Council. Um, Senator Borrello is my lead plaintiff. I'm also representing Assemblyman Chris Teague, Congressman Mike Lawler, and a citizens group called Uniting New York State. And uh, yeah, we sued, as he said, based on separation of powers. This regulation, which, you know, for any of your viewers that are not familiar with it, I just want to give a brief overview. This regulation it was called Isolation and Quarantine Procedures, and it was found at 10 NYCRR 2.13. So people refer to it as Rule 2.13. Um, it gave the Commissioner of Health the absolute unbridled power to pick and choose which New Yorkers the Department of Health could lock up or lock down. They could have locked you in your home and forced you to stay in your home, or they could have removed you from your home with the force of police and put you into a detention center or a facility or whatever you want to call it of their choosing. You had no say where you went. And they determined the Commissioner of Health or the Department of Health got to say how long you stayed there. So it could have been days, it could have been weeks, it could have been months no restriction whatsoever. They didn't have to prove you were sick. They didn't have to prove you were exposed to a communicable disease. They could have said, told you what you did and didn't do or could or couldn't do while you were in lockup or lockdown. Uh, and there was no age restriction. So they could have done this to you, but they also could have done this to your child or your grandchild or your elderly parent. I mean, there was no restraint whatsoever in this regulation, complete violation of due process. There was no right to an attorney until after you were locked up or after you were locked down. There was no right to do notice, which means that they could have literally just knocked on your, they could have sent the police to just knock on your door and hand you an isolation or a quarantine order. And they could have said, okay, I'm sorry, but you need to come with us. You know, we have, a, we have a health decree here. We have an order from the health department saying you or your child or whoever in your house has to come with us because you were exposed to whatever. And the other point that's really important here is that there was a laundry list of diseases that this could apply to. 
This came about during the COVID pandemic. However, it was not just about COVID. Uh, a laundry list of diseases that they could use this regulation for, and a lot of them were not even communicable or are not even communicable. Things like Lyme disease, things like uh, botulism, which is food poisoning, things like toxic shock syndrome. So these diseases, yes, COVID-19 was on that list. Yes, tuberculosis was on that list. You know, communicable diseases were on the list, but there were also not communicable diseases on that list. So we saw this complete breach of separation of powers. We have a law in New York. We've had it since 1953, our quarantine law. Now, it's 70 years old, and I have to say, it is full of due process protections. It weighs that balance between what are the rights of the individual who's sick versus the rights of society to stay you know, free from getting the germs of other people, keeping society safe and healthy. That law has many due process protections. Number one due process protection is you have to actually have the disease before they can even attempt to try to go to step number two, which would be the process of having a hearing and investigation and all this other stuff. So agencies can't write regulations or rules that conflict with our laws. That, that is, nobody challenges that. The attorney general doesn't even try to argue against that because it's a very common, uh, very long-standing principle of law. But here, that's exactly what they did. The agency wrote a regulation that conflicts with our existing 70-year-old quarantine law, conflicts with our constitution and the due process protections in our constitution. And they're not allowed to do that. They can't do that. And that's why the judge struck this down. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I have been, I, you know, I, this is not surprising to me, this, this particular case you guys are bringing, because it became clear to me during COVID that uh, health authorities had a sort of fiat authority, I'm guessing granted by the Constitution to the states, that I had no idea they had. No, Kelly's saying no. But in, in no. at least they exerted fiat authority. Kelly, you're saying no. Right. Yeah, no, they, they do not have that authority. There has been, I, first of all, Senator Borello and, and Bobby, and thank you for, for joining us for this conversation. Um, I've been talking about this quite a bit, which is the, the concerning uh, movement towards martial law as public health policy uh, and the idea of declaring something as a public health policy as a way to usurp uh, civil liberties. Um, that is not granted in the Constitution. Um, furthermore, I would submit to you that none of this could possibly have happened uh, uh, without the complicity of the medical industry, without physicians. None of this would have happened if physicians on whole and public health expert had stood up and said, there is no such entity as, quote, quarantining healthy people. The concept of quarantine is biblical. It goes back to the you know, leper colonies, where you take people who are actively ill and you keep them away from the rest of society. Quarantining or forcing healthy people to limit their movement is not called quarantine. That's called tyranny. There's a different word for that. Uh, and it's tyrannical. And I think that those are the things. There is nothing in public health uh, that supports the concept of taking healthy people and limiting their ability to move about. Um, so I think, Bobby Ann, I think you are spot on. Um, they have over, it's not only an overreach of their constitutional authority, but it is a complete breach of public health standards. 
Yeah, that's a great point. So it, it is one of the issues that is in this lawsuit. Um, the Department of Health, the Commissioner of Health in New York State, the governor, what they did was they expanded their powers. And this is part of our separation of powers argument and how they breached separation of powers. Um, they expanded their powers beyond what the legislature gave them. Agencies cannot act. Agencies are in the executive branch of government. And our constitution, both in New York State, but at the federal level as well, says clearly that the the ability to make laws lies with our legislature. So at the federal level, that's Congress. At the state level, that'll be your state legislature. So those are the people that we elect every couple of years. If we don't like the laws that they're making, we vote them out and we vote new people in to make different laws, right? That's, that's the whole concept behind having a legislature and being able to vote. So if you have agencies, which are in the executive branch, agencies that are run by people appointed by the governor, people that are just regular bureaucrats, regular you know, government employees, you can't give them the power to write rules or regulations that overrule or conflict with the laws that our legislators are making. Otherwise, that is tyranny. So in this case, the Department of Health did that. They expanded their power. They said, we are not just going to follow the quarantine law from 1953, which says that we can quarantine those who are sick, who are a public health threat. They have the disease. We've had a hearing. We've had an investigation. A judge, according to our law, a judge writes and issues isolation or quarantine order, not the commissioner of health. Um, that in that case, under the law, you do have to be not only sick, but you also they have to prove that you're a public health threat in some way, right. meaning you're not comporting yourself in a proper right. manner to protect yeah, that's, those that's around that's you. The way we, Correct. It's the way we've always so, done right. it. Here in California, we were told mm -hmm. it's an emergency, and under an emergency, we have authority, and you must listen to us. And people's lives were ruined who attempted right. to stand up with that, including businesses still shuttered, people losing jobs because it was, quote, an emergency. I'm guessing it must mean that each state has sort of a different issue. My, my question, maybe I'll prefer this to the senator first, what has happened here? What, what, how, how did 50 states or many of the 50 states all end up in the same place? I, I get what the legal issue is in New York, but many states ended up in the same place as New York did. What has gone wrong and what do we need to, obviously you guys have remedies you're trying to apply. Does each state need to investigate and sue and apply their own remedies? Well, I think the one of the dangerous things about this is if this passes in New York State, if this uh, if the uh, if the appellate division overrules and, and overturns this and this regulation comes back, it's going to send a message across this country yeah. that uh, you have bureaucrats mm -hmm. will now have the ability to essentially write laws. And that is not their purvey. That is not their role. So this uh, it will have reverberations across this nation, uh, I believe. So this is a very important fight. Mm -hmm. uh, but few, you know, the question is, how do we get here? Uh, well, I would say that we got here uh, under a number of circumstances. First and foremost, apathy. Uh, I think most people aren't paying attention to what their government is doing. They're too distracted by other things. Right. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, the people that are the most COVID crazy, the people that were the most fearful wearing double masks while they're driving down the road by themselves, it was a lot of people in their <laughs> 20s and 30s, the people that were the least uh, susceptible to, right. to dying. We have convinced them yes. uh, that, that uh, you know, I, I, it, it's frightening to see the paranoia 
you know, they're, they're, they're afraid the world's coming to an end because of climate change. Terrible. They're afraid that they're going to, I, I mean, and, and uh, that has created an environment where they believe that the government is the solution to everything. Uh, and, and it's frightening. And I can tell you that being in government, there's not a lot of smart people in government. Let me tell you something. So anybody that's listening, pay attention. Okay. These are not smart people running the government. Uh, and it is frightening to think that we have usurped our freedom, uh, our liberties to some people that, quite frankly, shouldn't be running anything. Most people working in government doing so, you know, because uh, they know somebody. And don't get me wrong. There are a lot of qualified people, a lot of intelligent people. When you start talking about the groupthink that is government, uh, it's a dangerous thing. Yeah, no, somebody, I, I think I think you're. I've heard that. I, somebody else told me that when I was thinking about getting into politics, they he said you need to be. And this was a very very famous political leader who said, "Don't do not do this unless you unless you are really prepared." And I mean really prepared to deal with not smart people because, and at least in here in this state, in this particular state particularly. Uh, so, but but you're confirming something uh, at another state level. I I am just stunned that. The Go ahead, Senator. Go ahead. I, I just want to say this. You have folks, ele my colleagues, elected officials, that went from being public advocates, public activists, which I'm not sure how you make a living doing that, to being staffers for other elected officials, to being members of the New York State Senate and Assembly. They've never had a real job in their life. Uh, and that's really frightening that those are the people that are writing these laws. You know, I'm not big on mandating things, but if there's one thing I could mandate is that uh, all my colleagues take Economics 101, because clearly they don't understand that. That's why we're seeing hyperinflation in New York, in, in, throughout the nation. You're, you're seeing, because they don't understand basic economics. Those are the people that are making decisions like this, about your health, about your, your freedom. And that's really frightening. I, I will add on to that, uh, Senator, that, uh, that we are seeing egregious breaches of the law as currently written. You know, for an example, one of the key components of an emergency use authorization, uh, the fact that when you have an emergency drug that is not FDA approved, it is experimental, as these vaccines, as of today, remain wholly experimental. There isn't a single FDA approved vaccination for COVID on the market in the United States as of this date, as we sit here today. They're experimental. By the Nuremberg Code, you cannot be mandated, coerced, or under fear of reprisal, be compelled to take that shot. Have we lost our minds? This is, I'm not an attorney. I'm a doctor and I know this. Okay? This is, this is the basics. The Every single mandate and coercion for these shots is illegal. It, it is a violation of the Nuremberg Code. We, we are doing this over and over again. This stuff Bob Yan's talking about, the idea of quarantining, forcing people to stay in their homes, it violates the laws as currently written in the state of New York. How are, they are treading on legislation that's already been written and we are letting it happen. And as you said, not only is the American public asleep, but where are all of our elected officials who are supposed to be protecting us from that? Well, sad to say that so many of our people are, are, are there's a lot of self-serving people in, in, in elected office. Uh, and as long as they're okay, and as long as, uh, you know, things are okay for them. And that's, you know, we just got a, a, a record increase in our pay in New York State uh, that was done a few days before Christmas last year, uh, making New York State the highest, pays, highest paid legislature in the nation. 
So, you know, my colleagues are truly insulated from the bad decisions that they make. Uh, And and that's really a problem. Bobby, and where where does the the lawsuit stand right now? You know, where where are you with this uh, case? Uh, so we just, we filed the case a year and a half ago and uh, the lower court judge, the trial court struck struck the regulation down, said it was unconstitutional. That was last summer. Um, the governor and the attorney general appealed the case. So we've been fighting the appeal now the last several months. And uh, we just had oral arguments two weeks ago um, at the appellate division. And um, we are now waiting for the decision basically of, of the appellate division. Are they going to affirm the lower court and say, yes, the lower court was correct. This should this should have been struck down. This is you know unconstitutional. Or are they going to basically reverse it? Uh, which means that they would switch uh, or overrule what the lower court said and then that, that regulation would come back into play. Um, so we're waiting for that decision. Uh, but you know, I, I have to say the the fact most New Yorkers do not know about this regulation. So the fact that mainstream media won't cover something like this. I mean, right. in my mind, if you have a group of New York state lawmakers, right, members of the legislature suing the governor in a fight for who's got this power, who's right, you know, what does the Constitution say? I would think that would be making national news, right? Yeah. Especially if it's happening in New York, because if it happens in New York, it can spread to other states. Many times, New York and California are the leaders on you know what's going on and trends in the country and stuff. So, you know, you would think that the mainstream media would be all over this. No, no, it's it's completely quiet. I mean, it, alternative media picks it up, but mainstream media doesn't want anything to do with this. Um, it's it's a shame because most New Yorkers, this crosses party lines. Most New Yorkers, if they knew what was going on, if they knew about this fight, if they knew that the governor was appealing to try and get this horrific power back, I think they would be completely outraged and they would they would stand up and say, absolutely not, no matter what their political affiliation is. Uh, but we're not seeing that because it's being kept so quiet um, and, and it's terrible. We did have a great turnout at the appellate division, I have to say, two weeks ago. Um, about 400 people showed up at the courthouse to hear the oral arguments, um, which is unheard of. You know, I mean, only in only on uh, television or in movies do people come to the court to to hear oral arguments. Um, there, it wasn't there, even a there trial. are so many things that we have looked at through the his- history of this country with horror, not the least of which is the Japanese internment camps. And yet this actually procedurally is precisely the same. It is exactly the same based on exactly the same notion. It's an emergency. We have to do something, which is insane that we're doing it again. It's I, I would point out we have... We put laws in place in the late 50s to protect professors because the McCarthy area excesses uh, lost the jobs of 100 professors in colleges who were accused of things. I would point out to you that in the present moment, professors that are accused of all sorts of indiscretions or, or transgressions, now we are at the point where in the present moment, 200 professors have lost their jobs and no one is making an issue of it. It's literally twice the severity of the McCarthy era. I would argue that quarantining sick people would put a lot more people into camps than Japanese internment put into camps. And yet no one is making the associations between the philosophy that is guiding these very phenomenologies again. 
Let me ask you, with that as a lead-in, Drew, let me ask both uh, Bobby Ann and, and Senator, it's sort of a chilling question. Are you aware of, if they're talking about putting people, you know, locking people up or putting them in facilities, is there a plan afoot? Is there a proposal for where these facilities, are they building internment camps? Is there a plan to, are there funds set aside to build facilities? They don't need to. Yeah, we're, we're- uh, Quite chillingly, the regulation says that the government can commandeer any facility and use it as a, a detention Perfect. center for, for this purpose. Um, so they don't even need to find a dollar anywhere. They, they could use uh, an empty prison because, uh, you know, New York State was emptying out prisons during COVID because that spreads COVID. Um, and, and our new bail, bail reform law, which I'm sure Senator Brello could give you details on, um, says that that you can't even hold a criminal um, uh, on bail because you know bail is is racist. So you know our prisons they could use they could use an empty prison for a quarantine facility. They could use uh, a, a multifamily house. They could use uh, a, a, an old you know abandoned school. I, I mean it, the reg said they could use any property that they wanted. They could use a hospital. They could use a, a anything. Um, so they, they didn't even they they didn't even need to build anything anywhere. <laughs> wow, beautiful. Yeah, I would add to that that um, you know during the uh, during the pandemic in the early days especially, uh, you know they were looking at closed hospitals uh, in my district uh, and other facilities, closed schools uh, to to use if they needed to 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 you know to quarantine sick people together. You know, but, you know, at that point, we didn't know what was going to happen, right? We didn't know how deadly and dangerous it was going to be early on. Uh, and uh, so there's no doubt that they had plans. They had engineers come do site visits at, at facilities. So they were ready to pull that trigger. Absolutely. Uh, so this would not take long. And I will also add one other thing. We've seen the shameless mainstream media that has been uh, the essentially covering for our governor. Recently, the Associated Press did a fact check, as they called it, uh, on uh, is the governor going to build quarantine camps? And uh, it was absolutely horrific that uh, that a uh, th- that a reporter with an agenda uh, came in and did this fake fact check, essentially, and said, oh, no, no, this isn't true. This isn't going to happen. And so you're seeing that a lot. You're seeing uh, our, our mainstream media, social media companies that are absolutely covering up the tyranny that's occurring in, in our government. Boy, uh, there's there's so many different things uh, concerning right now that are <clears throat> seemingly out of the view of the general public. I, I, Kelly, yesterday, Ed Dowd came back in and was talking about the excess mortality issues and right. how there's silence on that front. I, it, It's just an uncanny time when things that have always mattered greatly suddenly are not of interest to people that um, are supposed to be reporting the news. Uh, and right. also... The whole notion of questioning authority has been put on its ear, uh, and it's hard to it's hard to reconcile all these things. Uh, maybe I should ask um, Bobby Ann. Do do you, do you are you optimistic about these things? Are you do you have multiple fights you're contemplating taking to the government, or do you feel overwhelmed by what what you're facing? You know, I have to say this is something that's happening in New York, obviously, um, but it's also happening in other states. Um, I, I now have a network of attorneys um, who are 
you know, I call them constitutionalists because we are fighting for the constitution um, in other states. And I've had attorneys from other states, also from around the world, reach out to me to try and help them with, with their fights um, in their countries or in their states. But we're seeing this at the federal level, too. And I can give, you know, just off the top of my head, I can give a couple of examples of where where a lawsuit had to be brought in order to push the executive branch back into their lane because they had crossed over uh, impermissibly in violation of the Constitution into the lane of the legislature. Um, you know, when we saw uh, the CDC eviction moratorium, right? So all of a sudden the CDC, which is an agency, which is under the president, you know, that's the executive branch issued an e a nationwide eviction moratorium saying you cannot evict your tenants, landlords across the country, you cannot evict your tenants um, because that would spread COVID if you did that. So all of a sudden, not all, but many tenants stopped paying their rent because they knew that they couldn't be evicted for non-payment because the federal government had stepped in and said that they couldn't be evicted. So then you saw the absolute downfall of, of those small mom and pop landlords across the country. And most landlords in our nation are mom and pop shops. So a lot of people save up money, they buy a multifamily house, they'll live in one portion of the house and then they'll rent out the other portions for income and to pay their bills. Um, you saw people like that getting absolutely crushed because they they were sued and it did go all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And ultimately, the United States Supreme Court did strike down that regulation and did say, sorry, wrong branch of government. The CDC cannot make law. And, and this and this was a law. And so but in that time that it took a year, a year and a half for it to get up to the Supreme Court for them to strike it down. Look at all of the of the people, the everyday people like you and me who were crushed in the interim because the federal government stepped out of their lane an agency stepped out of their lane and crossed over into lawmaking. Right. We saw it also when Biden told OSHA, which Biden's the president, executive branch told OSHA, an agency under the under the president in the executive branch to make a rule that said that all employers in the United States that had 100 or more employees had to force their employees to either get the COVID shot or they had to test weekly and wear a mask to work and all this other stuff. So that was also challenged in the courts. That also went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And that also was struck down by the United States Supreme Court on the basis of separation of powers. SCOTUS said, no, OSHA, you cannot make a regulation like this. This is a law. This is not a regulation. And the lawmaking power lies with Congress the legislative branch of government. So, you know, those are just two examples. There are many others, um, but those are just two examples of this idea of the executive branch doing what they want to do. And a lot of times they know they don't have that power, but they do it anyway. And I call it catch me if you can. And the attitude is, okay, we're going to do this. We, we, we know we can, or we probably are sure we can, but we're going to do it anyway. And come catch me if you can. Bring a lawsuit. See if you can stop me. See what the see what the judge says. If the judge rules against me, okay, maybe I'll stop. But if the, the judge doesn't rule against me, then I'm just going to keep this new power that I gave myself, and I'm going to run with it, right? So it's really dangerous because when you have a branch of government that reaches over into another branch and takes that power from the other branch, that is the very definition of tyranny. And who suffers when that happens? 
it's the people who suffer. Absolutely 100%. So this is why it's so important to have the right people in the leadership positions. I'm just hoping more people will wake up and and start supporting uh, the, the politicians or the candidates that are running for office who honor the Constitution, who understand the Constitution. Because if we had more people, you know, if we had more Senator Borellos, uh, more Assemblyman Tags, more Congressman Lawlers who stood up for our Constitution and put their names on this lawsuit and are, and are fighting the governor on this, you know, more people like that running the government, we wouldn't be in this position of having to fight in court and spend all this time and energy and resources um, to fight and push them back into their lane. It's your constitutionalist. Your constitutionalist colleagues are giving me some faith. It's actually kind of thrilling to hear what you guys are doing. But uh, as it pertains to constitutionalism, I, I declare here today we should form a new party. It's time for a new party, the Constitutional Party. How about that, Senator? We should, we should all rally around the Constitution as a political movement. And uh, because God knows uh, there are those out there that want to erode it. That, that is for sure. So, I, Bobby, and thank you for doing that work. And, of course, as soon as the government is smacked down, they, they issue immense apologies and compensations for the excess oh no wait a minute they do none, nothing nothing like that uh kelly and i dr victor and i have had to walk through walk across many uh uh many hot coals in the last couple of years uh, uh in terms of defending our license and our professional standing and got a million of other things that have been uh put upon us and uh, uh so far kelly how many apologies have you received yeah, exactly. I'm waiting by the mailbox for uh, all those hours <laughs> back that I spent defending my medical licenses. Uh, meanwhile, while they slowly and you know surreptitiously retract things, like all of a sudden the FDA says, "Oh, it turns out physicians can prescribe ivermectin," and now the Mayo Clinic says, "Oh, it turns out uh, you know hydroxychloroquine you know would work for COVID," is and on and on. Yet, it is uh, a treatment. Uh, yeah. you know, it yeah. is a treatment for. But but the bottom line is, you never get an apology. Uh, they they just sort of move on. But as the senator said in your opening remarks, you know, fear, you mentioned the word fear, and I talk about fear a lot. Without fear, none of this could ever have happened. So it's been somewhat of the perfect storm. You have a, uh, a population that does not understand the Constitution uh, or how our government is supposed to work. You have a, an entire population that is wedded to social media and very, very easily manipulated uh, by social media. And you have a population that is wedded and completely reliant on its government. That makes a population that is really susceptible to fear. Fear is always a powerful intoxicant. It's the easiest way to manipulate people. But you add those other things in, which is, you know, ignorance of their actual rights, ignorance of how it's supposed to work and reliance on that government, uh, plus fear of social reprisal. And it is a toxic soup uh, that really is uh, it, it puts people at huge risk. And I appreciate what you are doing. You need more of you in the same way that I feel like I, we, I need mm. more of me, uh, more of us. Mm. We cannot do this. Uh, alone, particularly the uphill battle that you fight with the constant cancel culture. So um, blessings to both of you for putting yourselves out there. Uh, God knows, I know how to, you're suffering the slings and arrows, I'm sure, um, but it's worth the fight. Thank you. We'll keep the faith, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, thank uh, you. Senator, you know, if you, we, I, go ahead, Bobby. I was just going to say, you know, when you're talking about fear as the underlying issue here, 
you know, a lot, a lot of people in the past three and a half years have, have um, kind of relied upon or, or always pointed to, you know, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which is mm-hmm. a 1905 Supreme Court case. Right. Um, and, you know, they say, oh, the government, but the government can do this to us. You know, they do have this power. And look at Jacobson. And, you know, it, Jacobson has been twisted and turned and, um, right. you know, thoroughly rewritten by, uh, I think, the public or perhaps uh, certain people in the public because um, Jacobson does not say the government can do whatever they want in the time of emergency. Okay, I just want to throw that out there because that is not what Jacobson says. Um, Supreme Court in Jacobson basically said that the challenge was to a Massachusetts state law, right? So Massachusetts law um, that required that the citizens get either vaccinated against smallpox, or they had to pay a fine, which was $5 at the time, which is about $150 today, I believe, Um, or they had to have some sort of an excuse, an exemption that was granted. So the law didn't say, do this one thing, or, you know, you're going to jail, or or, or do this one thing, or you're going to lose your job, or you know, mm-hmm. do this one thing or we're going to slander you all over the place without recourse. You know, that is not what Jacobson said. <laughs> so, um, you right. know, people, I think, again, it's it's an education thing. Um, people need to understand, yes, the Constitution and their rights, but they also need to understand, you know, no, emergency doesn't, does the, does the government's power expand in time of emergency? Yes. But does it mean that they become dictators and totalitarianism? can now be justified. No, that's that's not what happens as per the Constitution. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The United States Supreme Court has held many times over and over again um, that in times of emergency, the Constitution does not get put away in a drawer and, and left mm-hmm. there until the emergency is over. Um, they've said just the opposite. They've said many times that the Constitu- that emergency does not create power. The Constitution is the Constitution. And you don't get new powers just because there's an emergency. So I think people just what, need, it's just education. It, it's really, and, and I don't blame which, the people. I, I, blame mainstream, I blame mainstream media. Right. What should people do if they want to support you or the other constitutionalist attorneys? Um, if people want to support me, um, I do have a donate button on my website. Um, I've been handling this case against the governor pro bono for a year and a half. So um, I do have a donate button on my site, which is uh, www.coxlawyers.com. It's spelled C-O-X lawyers.com. Um, there's a lot of information there about this lawsuit as well. I have a media tab on that lot, on that page. Um, and a lot of interviews, a lot of articles that have been written about it um, and such. So if people want more information, I would say go to coxlawyers.com. And I'm also on Twitter. If people want to follow me, it's um, attorney underscore cox, C-O-X. But yeah, I I think getting involved, if people can get involved, you know, whether it's supporting a Mm. politician who's constitutionally inclined or whether it's, uh, you know, writing a letter to your representatives in whether it's Congress or your state legislature, uh, or if you don't have time to, to volunteer, then make a donation to a lawsuit like mine or make a donation to a politician's campaign. You know, everybody has to do something because, uh, you know, we can't just sit back and, and watch the show and unfold before us. I mean, that, that time has passed. We have to all roll up our sleeves and do something to get involved. 
And thank you, Bobby. And, and Senator, any closing thoughts as we roll towards the end here? Well, I would say that um, I'm hoping that there has been an awakening across this nation, uh, people understanding that their rights are being taken away. Uh, I think, uh, you know, quite frankly, the, those in charge, you know, and it's the Democrats that are in charge, you know, particularly here in New York State, they're seeing this uh, and they are concerned and they are willing to throw out uh, a lot of our freedoms uh, and, and our quality of life to try and keep a stranglehold on power. Uh, so people have to understand that, you know, when you look at uh, the so-called migrant crisis and the open border, you know, this is about essentially eliminating the middle class and bringing in a class of dependent people that are completely dependent on the Democrats for survival. Uh, you know, uh, whether it's giving them the right to work, whether it's making sure that their kids are in school, whether it's sure, whether it's uh, you know, having whatever to make ends meet. Uh, you know, th this is the problem. They are willing to throw out uh, our quality of life. They're willing to throw out our sovereignty in order to maintain their stranglehold on power. And people have to recognize that that's what's going on. Right. Thank you, Senator uh, Kelly. Any last thoughts? No, I just really appreciate, as you said, if if we allow this to happen in New York, don't 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 breathe a sigh of relief because you live in Iowa or Florida or California or Ohio, wherever. Because if this happens in New York, it is coming to a state near you. Um, you know, these things tend to tend to spread, uh, and so if this is allowed to pass in New York, God help us. Um, we we really everyone needs to wake up and start paying attention to what's happening here because we are we are on the slippery slope. So thank you again for what Bobby you're Ann, doing. Bobby Ann Cox, yeah, no. Senator George Burrell, thank you for joining us. And finish your thoughts there. Thank you there, so Bobby much. Ann. I really appreciate you having us on. We'll hopefully check in with you again to see how this thing goes. Depending, yeah. Hopefully the appellate will uphold the case. Thank you to both of you. Kelly, I'm going to have you stay for a second. Which okay. is just to kind of reflect on women between uh, Getz, Getzko and uh, this story and again, Ed Dowd reporting very concerning data about excess mortality. So much of, you know, I, I, I try to understand sort of globally what's going on. And you said fear. I agree with you 100%. I don't understand people's willingness to tell other people how to live their life or a desire or enjoyment in that and why others would want that. It's confusing to me. Um, and it's confusing to me the silence around the excess mortality issues. Uh, it's, you know, we, you could come up with glib answers, obviously, you know, you just follow the money and any of this stuff, but I, I can't, I can't put it all together. Can you? Well, I, I think what we I think we are seeing just an unprecedented amount of fraud, Drew, uh, that's going on, uh, and it's everything. Well, with they, with their and silence, you know, silence seeing, from the media, and and silence they, from the media, right? We've had periods of history with a lot of fraud. The media is usually at the gates, you know, the one holding, you know, telling us about it. Now, now they're saying right, nothing. But the no, no, no. no. Because the media is in on it. Media is part of it. I mean, and, and you can't, and I don't care which media you follow. I don't care if you're watching Fox News or MSNBC. You know, each segment is brought to you by Pfizer or brought to you by Moderna. We are one of two countries on the planet, the United States and New Zealand, that allows pharmaceutical advertising on television. Those advertising dollars make it run, okay? The reality is Fox News, which is the, you know, one, one of the uh, more conservative uh, stations, 70% of their advertising dollars comes from the pharmaceutical industry, okay? Mm. There is nothing that's independent anymore, Drew. Their news is not the news. Their opinion mm. pieces 
They, all it is is their opinion, and their opinions are completely molded and and controlled by who pays their their advertising dollars. So unfortunately, you know, the independent Chilling. news is gone as as what you and I grew up with, the 11 o'clock news that actually reported the news, uh, not somebody's opinion about the news. Uh, that's gone. Those days are those days are behind us. We have got to either demand the disarticulation of our media from these other sources, or we, you know, it's not, it's perestroika. We, we are, we are just reading propaganda. That's all it is. Uh, and it's a very, very dangerous time to be living because you have to really seek it out as a thinking, critical thinking, analytical individual. You've got to seek out the truth and you are not getting that from the mainstream media. It's actually hard to determine the truth because I always try to, you mm-hmm. know, I, I, don't, I try not to assume that everything I'm hearing, everything I'm thinking is correct. Mm-hmm. I'm always trying to think, well, there's got to be other points of view on this, and I want to hear those too. But it, it's hard to get all the different points of view. You have to seek it uh, voraciously. Caleb, throw up the uh, upcoming guest, if you would. I, I, uh, Emily was already hard at work on getting uh, Getsky back to see us. She, he might come back next week to talk about okay. Let's see if she puts it up there. No, Jabhat Acharya, October 5th. Uh, Rob Schneider, October 10th. Uh, October 3rd, I think that's you, Kelly. Uh, we'll be out of town yes. with uh, Reggie Littlejohn. Want, want to tell us about yes. that? Uh, yeah, Reggie Littlejohn, well, she's well known for her stance on abortion and, and things related to, to women's rights, um, but she's gotten involved in the COVID uh, debacle as well and exposing much of the, mm-hmm. what I call fraud uh, of our different agencies, not only the, the vaccine disaster, uh, but really the rampant fraud that's run in our agencies everyone from the NIH to the CDC. And uh, most recently, I don't know, I'm hoping I'll get into it a little bit, The uh, this recent mm. bombshell with Anthony Fauci's um, undocumented visit to CIA. the CIA and, and uh, his involvement in uh, really manipulating what the CIA concluded with regard to the origins of, of COVID. So we'll probably get into that a little bit as well. Sounds like fun. I appreciate you being here with us today as always. Uh, Thank you, Caleb, Susan, for producing this, Emily, for booking it. And we'll see you all tomorrow at our usual time. Uh, Lionel, by himself, is going to make a return visit. Now, cut him loose a little bit. Let's see what he comes up with. So we'll see you tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. Hold up. 